Who am I? Where am I going? What am I doing? So today's passage, we're going to be looking at those questions and answering those questions, but Paul, the writer of 2 Thessalonians, doesn't come at it from that angle to say, okay, let's ask these questions. But as we saw last week in the background to today's passage, he's writing because the Christians in Thessalonica were facing grave danger. They were walking on thin ice. They were close to the edge of a cliff. And that danger and the thin ice was the danger of deception. Deception, lies, falsehoods, and untruth. And what was happening, as we saw in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, was that the Thessalonian Christians were starting to believe things that were not true. And the first thing that they weren't believing was, they thought that the day of the Lord had already come, that Jesus had already come, the kingdom of God had already arrived, and as a result, they were unsettled and alarmed. And Paul says, as we read last week, these words. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and let's look at verse 3 onwards. He says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God and his worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was used, when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but what, the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and will destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. So what Paul is saying is do not be deceived. The word that keeps being repeated here is the word deceived. Because for Christians from Thessalonians all the way to Singapore today, Satan will continue to work in the same way and the man of lawlessness will work in the same way where he will try to deceive Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, so that they will turn away and become different people. And who will be these different people? Well, as we saw last week, God will des- God describes them in this way. So if you look up here on this slide, so there will be another group of people and who are they? They will be followers of Satan and the man of lawlessness. Right? And what will they be doing? They will be rejecting the truth. They will be deceived. They will delight in wickedness and believe the lie. And where will they be going? They will be perishing. They will be destroyed by Jesus when he comes again. Now, as we look at this passage, it is a contrast to who we are as Christians today. But as we look at the very, very last verse of last week's, or the last passage uh, that we saw two weeks ago, I want us to pay attention to verse 11, which is up here on the slide. Because it is a very shocking passage, and I think 
when we read it and try to understand it to its fullest extent, it is really shocking because it says, for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Shocking! Because it seems to say that if people choose to delight in wickedness, if they choose to follow untruth or follow the lie, what will God do? At some point in time, God will send them a powerful delusion and push them further away from Him. So if you want to look at it visually, this is like a diagram I put together, right? Next slide. It's almost as if, if you want to choose to, to not follow God, if you want to walk away from God, then God will allow you to be deluded. So you will not just walk away from Him, but you will run away from Him. You will run even further away from God. And you will indulge in more wickedness and more untruth and be even more convicted in the lies of Satan and the man of lawlessness. Now this is where today's passage comes in. Because today's passage in verse 13 and 14 contrasts the people who are turning away from God, who God is sending a delusion and running even further away from God, to God's people. Because in today's passage it says, But, but we always ought to thank God for you, brothers and sisters loved by God, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unlike the other people who follow Satan, who are running away from God, choose to follow lies, be deluded and delight in wickedness and are destined to perish, what are we like as Christians? Who are we? We are chosen by God. We are called by God. It is not our work. We don't choose God. God has chosen us first and called us. And this divine call, this divine choice is effectual, effective, and irresistible. When God calls us and chooses us, we cannot resist. And as a result, our destiny, where we are going, is completely different from this other group of people because we are destined not for condemnation and perishing, but as it says there, to share in the glory of God and Jesus when He comes again. Now, I think this is such an important question for us to answer. You see, if you don't know who you are and where you are going, it's very hard for you to stand firm as a Christian. So I was just talking to a few people over the last few weeks, and they are faced with a lot of powerful temptation. Some people are in the army, in NS, some people are at work, some people have family pressure. Unless you know who you are and where you are going, it's very hard for you to stand firm against temptation and pressure and peers who are trying to pull you away. And we must always remember that who we are, where we are going, does not come from ourselves, but it comes from God alone in heaven. That's why it says at the very beginning of this passage, but we ought to always thank God. See, think of those two words. We ought to always thank God. The word ought here 
is a rightness to we must thank God. There is an obligation to thank God because we didn't choose ourselves, but God chose and called us. And we ought to always thank God because God is the one who is always at work within us to watch over us and to save us. So I remember when um, um when my mother passed away, um at the headboard of her bed, uh she has this sliding headboard. And when she died, we, because you know, we have to clear all her stuff, right? I mean, usually when people die, you don't know all their private things, but then you go and clear all their cupboards and everything. And she had all these CDs. And, um, we were going to throw away some of the CDs, but as I was going through them, I thought, hey, some of these CDs are actually not so bad, even though they're really old, so I'll keep, I'll keep some of them. And I've been listening to the CD of the best of the Eagles. See, are you, do you know who the Eagles are? Okay, the Eagles are this old band, right? Okay. So anyway, the other CDs like, have you heard of Bread? Are you all don't know Bread? Okay. Right. So anyway, I was listening to the Eagles, and there's this song, right, which goes like, you know, I've got a peaceful, easy feeling, right? Because I know you won't let me down because I'm already standing on the ground. Now this is a, a love song, obviously. But when I was listening to, it, I was thinking, that's exactly the the the, the position of the Christian. We, we know that God doesn't let us down because we are already standing on the ground. We are already standing on the ground of salvation. And we are protected and guarded not because of our own abilities, our own efforts, our own strength, but because God has chosen us. God has called us. And that's what distinguishes us from the other people who are deluded and deceived and chased after wickedness. But it doesn't end there, because when you look at this passage, there's actually a structure to it. It's not just because God has called us, God has chosen us, so we just sit there and lie down on our hammocks and look at our belly buttons and uh, twiddle our thumbs. But God expects us to do something, because now that He's called us and chosen us, what are we to do? So if you look at the passage, it says that there is a means by which God has called us. There's an instrument. How has God actually called us and chosen us? Well, it says there that he's called us by the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Look at those words very carefully with me. Don't you think that's really strange? Usually when we think of salvation, we always say you are saved through Jesus Christ. You are saved through his death on the cross. You are saved by the cross. We don't usually think of the work of the Holy Spirit or the belief in the truth that saves us. So why is it that the Bible here talks about salvation in the sanctifying work of the Spirit and belief in the truth? Good question, Andrew. Okay, the reason is because if you look at the next slide, you'll see that actually the reason why we're described this way is because we are so different from those who are deceived and delight in wickedness. Right? So the people who are following Satan, the people who are deceived, what do they do? They delight in wickedness. But we are different because we are sanctified through the work of the Holy Spirit working in us. You see, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the idea of being holy and set apart for God's work. The idea of being cleansed and washed so that we are 
we are rightly able to do what God wants us to do. Now, this word, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, uh, doesn't appear very often in the Bible. But in 1 Peter, chapter 1, if you look up here, next slide, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. See, what does the Holy Spirit do in us to sanctify us? It calls us back to the blood of Jesus Christ which washes us clean. And it calls us to obedience to Jesus Christ. So therefore, we are not like the other people. We are not like the people who are following Satan and the man of lawlessness, the man of sin. Because we allow the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to keep calling us back to the blood of Jesus and to obedience to Him. But the next point seems to be the point that the rest of this next few verses seems to uh, focus on. So if you go back, it talks about how we are saved through the means of believing in the truth. Now, if we go through this passage, it seems like the truth is the gospel. The gospel is the teachings which are passed down to Thessalonians, which are passed down to us. And if you look at verse 15, next slide, uh, keep going to the other slide, the next one, you'll see that because of the means by which we are saved, through belief in the gospel, belief in the teachings believe in the truth. What must we do? We must hold fast to the teachings that were passed down to us. We must stand firm in it. Now these two phrases, to stand firm and to hold fast, are commandments, instructions. They're not suggestions. These things that we must do because we are chosen and called by God. So, I want to expand a bit on these pictures of standing firm, right? Because it's a visual picture of standing firm. So if you watch the Olympics, uh, you know, sometimes you watch Olympics and all sorts of funny, funny sports come on that you never watch. So the other day I was watching Olympic judo and I still can't understand how you, you, you get scoring, you know, like people falling down over the place and nothing happens. Then all of a sudden someone falls down and looks exactly the same as the others. And then somehow the person gets one point, right? But I was thinking of the judo where you're supposed to stay within the mat. If you if you think of the judo mat, right, it's a square. And uh, if you keep getting pushed out of the square, what I realized when you watch the judo competition after a while, you lose points. Lah. You can't keep running out of the square. You've got to stay within the square and, and stand your ground and fight against the other person, right? So I think that's really, really important that we we, we understand that picture because that is exactly the picture which is in view here that we are to stand firm within the gospel. We are to be unmoved within the gospel. We might be tempted to be drawn outside the square of the gospel. We may be tempted for someone to push us out of the gospel. But we are to stand firm within the gospel and be unmoved within it. The next picture is that of holding fast. Okay, The idea of holding fast is a bit like... um. Okay, I used to have a dog at home. And, uh, you know, my dog, when you give him a bone, if you give most dogs bones, 
they don't like to give up the bone, right? It's, it's like, that's just the way it is. It's like, they will, you pull the bone, you can shake the bone, their head will be like vibrating and, you know, they, they look as if their whole head is falling off, but they will, they will refuse to let go of the bone. And that's the picture that we are supposed to have here. If the means by which God saves us is through the truth, through the gospel, then we are to hold on to the gospel like a dog holds on to a bone. Never letting go. Being persistently holding on. Now I think that these visual pictures of holding on to the truth, standing firm in the gospel, are so important today for us. Because this is one of the challenges that we face as Christians today. The first thing that I think of application is, right at the very foundation is we need to know that salvation comes through belief in the truth, in the gospel, in the teaching. So many people nowadays seem to think that as long as I believe in God, I'm saved. Oh, no, it doesn't matter what sort of God I believe in. As long as He's, you know, somehow associated with Christianity, He, you know, it's okay, I'm saved. But that is not true. You know, I can read commentaries and stories on the internet of people say, I believe I'm saved because I have a sincere belief in God. But I don't believe that Jesus Christ was a virgin birth. I don't believe in a creator God. I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But I have a sincere faith. And because I have a sincere faith, I will be saved. But that is just not what the Bible is saying here. Sincerity has nothing to do with salvation. It is what you believe in that is important. If I believe I believe in the gospel, in the teachings, in the truth that was passed down to us. In its entirety, I cannot pick and choose what I want. I must believe in the truth because that is the means by which God has chosen and called me. I think the second application is, as we come to God's word, we must let the Holy Spirit work through us so that as we read God's word, together with God's word, we we do the, we let the Holy Spirit do its sanctifying work within us. So if you look at this diagram, I was sort of reflecting on it in one of the commentaries that I was reading, because it couldn't quite decide when we read verse 12, right? If you read verse 12 very carefully, do people reject the truth because they love wickedness? Or is it because they love wickedness and therefore they reject the truth? Or maybe it's a cycle. They reinforce one another. See, because I, I love wickedness, so I don't like what the Bible tells me, so I reject the Bible. As I reject the Bible, then I find that I still have more things that I want to do which the Bible tells me I shouldn't do, so I reject more of the Bible. You see, it reinforces one another. I don't want to listen to the truth because it goes against the way I want to live. And because I want to live this way, I reject the truth. But in the same way for us as Christians, as we allow the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to be working in us, so all the more when we come to the truth, when we come to the Bible, we will let its work work in us. We will obey it more and more. 
So I remember very sadly a Christian friend of mine who was a, a mentor of mine when I was very young. When I first became a Christian, this man was a, a very mature Christian already. Today, he has uh, divorced his wife. He's uh, living out of wedlock with another woman and he has a child with that woman. But he still insists that he is a Christian. And what is really shocking to me is that the church that he goes to affirms his decision and tells him that he is still a Christian and that he is right to live how he lives. But can you see how there's a disconnect between the sanctifying work of the Spirit and obedience to what the Bible is saying in this man's life? Because he's not following the truth or the gospel, he's just doing what he wants to do. And as a result, as he lives more and more wickedness, he's rejecting more and more of the Bible. I feel so sad for, for my friend because I feel that at the end of the day, the way he lives shows me that actually he is not chosen and called by God, but instead he is actually following the lies of Satan and delighting in wickedness. Now the last application comes at the last part of verse 15, which I think we need to pay attention to. Think slide. You see, the teaching, what is the teaching, what is the gospel, what is the truth that the Thessalonian Christians are meant to obey? Well, the key word here are the teachings that we passed on to you. The teachings that the Thessalonian Christians received from Paul was received from Paul from other people. So what it means is that it's like a body of knowledge of truth which is passed on to one generation, to another generation, to another generation. And this truth must be unchanged, must be untouched because that is the way that the truth of God was designed to be understood. So think of it as a slide like this. Okay, so, uh, okay, imagine Paul passes on the body of truth, the gospel, the teachings to the Thessalonian Christians. The Thessalonian Christians then pass it on to the next generation. And from that generation, it passes through on to another generation and another generation. Anyway, I, I didn't have... So imagine between the time of Paul to ourselves, it's been like 2,000 years, so maybe like 30 generations, right? But I, I didn't have... Uh, I didn't have 30 slides, so it took too long. So just imagine it's times 30 here. Okay, so next slide. So eventually, the truth, the gospel, the teaching is passed on to us here at BDPC in Singapore. But standing in that truth, holding fast to that truth, means that that truth that was passed on from Paul to the Thessalonian Christians must be passed on to us undiluted, unamended, and unchanged. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not like Chinese whispers. Because you know when we go to the church camp, you know we always play that silly game where we all you know all the church, all the you know when you ever go to church camp, we always break you up into teams, right? And then the team members from the front to the back are meant to do some uh, some exercise where uh, there's some transformer game or something. Then everybody tells one to the other until at the very end the message is completely all mangled up and confused, right? Well, okay, that's not the way the Christian faith works. 
It's not Chinese whispers, right? We whisper from one another. But rather, God has said that when we stand firm in the truth, holding fast in the truth, that truth, that teaching must be passed on one generation to another generation to another generation to another generation, unchanged, undiluted, and unamended. Satan wants us to doubt that message, to dilute that message, to change that message, to reduce that message. But holding fast to it, standing firm in it, means that we must keep it the same as what Paul did when he passed it to the Thessalonian Christians. Now, in the world that we live in today, that's not true, isn't it? Because we see many people who instead of standing firm in the gospel, the truth, and the teachings, they, they run after lies. So instead of coming to the Bible, they want to, to go to prophecies or to visions or to their own individual dreams and messages from God. Other people, next slide, they don't like the whole sum of what the Bible is teaching, so they, they keep reducing and reducing and reducing what the Bible says, says until it gets smaller and smaller. Now the temptation for us today is that because there are so many people who are running after so many things and reducing the message smaller and smaller is that we look around and we say, hey, so many people now don't believe in the Bible. Well, maybe we should, we should be like them. We should not follow the Bible too. But God tells us if we are called by God, chosen by God through the means of believing in the truth in the gospel then we must hold fast to it, stand firm in it. We must be like the early Christians. You know, we often think that we are we are facing very unique challenges, right? You know, like we are the only generation in the whole of Christ Christendom which ever faced pressure from people not to believe what the Bible says. Well, we should be like Athanasius who argued that Jesus was the Son of God. And someone said to Athanasius, they said, you know, Athanasius, you need to change your mind because the whole world is against you on this. And Athanasius said, well, then it's Athanasius against the world. We should be like Martin Luther, who was threatened with excommunication by the Catholic Church. And he said, unless you show me from the Bible where I'm wrong, I will not change. See, ultimately, if the means by which God saves us is through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth, then we must stand firm in the truth, hold fast to the truth. Okay, in the last verse that we're looking at, the last two verses, verse 16 to 17, it says, May our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and by His grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Now, this passage is um, very, very important for us because we can mistake church as just a place where we hold fast to the message and stand firm in the gospel. We can become like a, a monastery, you know, so we're always like in, inward looking, very insular, and we just serve ourselves. Okay, guys, let's just stand fast in the gospel, stand fast in the uh, the teachings of the Bible, and then that's all we do. But you notice here that actually the Thessalonian Christians who are loved by God, 
and they were loved by Jesus in the earlier verse, they're actually meant to be encouraged and strengthened for every good deed and word. Now the word here, strengthen you, right? It's actually plural, it's not individual, you know, not you as in Andrew, you know, another Andrew, 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 okay? But it means plural, it means strengthen you as a church to every good deed and word. Now what did Paul have in mind here in terms of the good deeds and the words? Well, I think the context of 1 Thessalonians was very important. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we read this already, about how God... Uh, he, uh, Paul always thanks God, mentioning you in our prayers. We continue to remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus. And in verse 7, So you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. And again in 2 Thessalonians it says, We ought always to thank God for you brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore among God's churches we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. So in the Thessalonian church they were facing great, great persecution. But in spite of that persecution, they were loving each other. And by their perseverance, their actions, and their endurance, they were actually making God's message known. People were, were, were encouraged by their model. Paul was boasting about them. So I think that as we look at this passage, God's purpose for the Thessalonian Christians was to become an instrument to bring the gospel and the truth to the ends of the earth. See, that's why in verse 13, if you look at the some of the translations, it says, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Uh, I know that the version that I think Daniel was reading, the older version, says, from the beginning. Uh, but the idea of first fruits is also there in many of the translations. And the idea of first fruits is, uh, the first fruits was given in the Old Testament as a representative of the whole so I give you the first bit as a representation of all the bits and parts that will come afterwards. So I think what is really being said here is that the Thessalonian Christians were the first of many, many, many more believers who would come into the world to generations like ourselves. They were the first fruits before we came into the world, before we became believers. And I think that's so important for us to understand because as we look at this passage, the good deeds and the words that we are meant to do must be an expression of going out in love to love other Christians, but also to love other people as they persevere, as they endure, as they go out as good witnesses. The gospel goes out and God uses them as an instrument to bring his gospel to people. So I think that that's a really important lesson for us because the temptation for us is to be like a Christian ghetto. Right? You know what a ghetto is? It's where everybody of the same race or the same culture come together, right? Well, that's not what God intends of His church. We're not meant to come together 
And our whole purpose is just to hold on to the gospel and wait for Jesus Christ to come. God's intention for us is for us to love other people, to love Christians, but not just Christians, but to love other people by our example and our deeds and our words to bring the gospel into the world. We must be used as instruments in our deeds and our words. I was thinking about it the other day, and I was thinking, how will that play out in our lives? What does it look like? So I was thinking, think for a moment, the family day. So next week we have our family day. Okay, so I won't, I won't, I won't ask you to put out your hands to ask whether you're going or not. But we have our family day next week. How do you see the family day? Do you see it as just an opportunity to, uh, to not go at all so you can go and rest at home? Or do you see it as just an opportunity to love one another? Or even more than that, do you see it as an opportunity to invite your friends to come to a setting where they may be able to make friends with other Christians in a non-threatening environment so that they will feel comfortable to come to church maybe one day and to hear the gospel of truth and for God to use you as an instrument to save them? Well, if we were to take, oh, well, if we were to take, um, verse 16 and 17 seriously and say, well, I want to pray this prayer so that God may encourage and strengthen me to do every good deed and word, then surely one way to do it is where we see things like the family day to say, okay, this is one opportunity in which I can do a good deed or I can do say a good word and invite my friend to come so that they have an opportunity in the future to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. For God to use me as an instrument to reach out to other people so that they can be saved. So in conclusion, we need to keep asking this question for ourselves. Who am I? Where am I going? What am I doing? Can you answer those questions? If you can't answer those questions, then it makes it very hard for you to actually resist the call of Satan. To resist the man of lawlessness. I remember reading uh, in uh, this book called The Reformed Pastor. He said Satan is like the master fisherman or the angler. He's able to bait his hook just right for your weaknesses and your temptations. He will know exactly what your weakness is and he will bait it so that you are attracted. Unless you know who you are, that you are chosen and called by God, unless you know where you're going to share in the glory when Jesus comes, and unless you know what you're doing, to stand fast, to to hold fast and to stand firm in the gospel, then you will fall for Satan's trap. So therefore, you really need today, as we look at this very short passage, to know who am I? Where am I going? And what am I doing? Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we really ask that you may help us to understand your word, to see the great assurance that we have that you have chosen us, that you have called us, and that we should always be thankful to you. Dear Father, help us to see that the means by which you have called and chosen us is by the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the Gospel. 
So dear Father, we pray for ourselves that we may hold fast to the gospel truth. We may stand firm in the gospel. And dear Father, help us at the same time not just to look inwardly, but to be encouraged and strengthened by you in your grace and your love for every good deed and word. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.